Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. This week we're going to hear from Larry Aberman, who for 13 years has been the drummer for Cirque du Soleil's Zumanity in Las Vegas. Larry was handpicked for the gig and moved from Los Angeles to Las Vegas to be part of the custom design show. Before that, he had developed a long list of credits in New York and L.A., uh, which we touch on a little bit, but we talk mainly about his experience in Vegas and what that town has to offer in terms of making a living as a musician. We are coming to the end of our survey at WorkingDrummer.net. If you're listening to this episode on Wednesday, December 14th, you have one more day to take part in it. Uh, Once again, go to WorkingDrummer.net and just click the pop-up to take the survey and be entered to win some great stuff from Aquarian Drumheads. We're sponsored this week by Sonar Drums, and let's hear a little more about that from Matt Krause. We all love vintage gear, and I bet you know someone that owns an old Les Paul or maybe a 56 Fender Strat that never leaves the home, and the question is, why do we love this gear? It looks cool, it gives you that warm, handcrafted tone, and often brings a unique vibe to the music. Of course, it has its limitations, and if we're talking drums, we run into problems like its fragility, limited tuning... So where am I going with this? Well, once again, I went back out to KHS America in Mount Juliet, Tennessee to spend some time with some vintage gear. I'm talking about the Sonar Vintage Series Kit. I had seen and heard these at Summer NAM, but now I had a little one-on-one with these beautiful drums. Some specs you should know that make these drums uh, a modern vintage kit. The shells are that hand-selected premium German beach shell with rounded bearing edges. Keep in mind, This comes from the same forest of beechwood trees that were used in the manufacturing of sonar drums from the 1960s. The recreated teardrop lugs are a big deal. They look and feel just like the original, but now it has sonar's exclusive tune safe system. In other words, they stay in tune. There are many beautiful finishes you can choose from, like the vintage pearl and my favorite, the red oyster. It looks, sounds, and feels like a vintage kit, but maintains the quality and reliability of a modern kit. You could really call this a modern vintage kit. So go to us.sonar.com to learn more about the vintage series and find a dealer near you. So you might not think of Vegas as a place for musicians to make a living, uh, but as you'll hear from Larry, there's plenty of opportunity there if you have the right mindset, uh, and especially if you land a long-running show like he did Uh, job security doesn't get much better than that for a drummer in any city. So I hope you enjoy this talk with Larry Aberman. Well, the show started, the show I'm doing, Zumanity, it started uh, 13 and a half years ago when I moved here for that. You've been doing that show for 13 and a half years? Since the beginning, yeah. That is a hell of a run. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's unprecedented, really. Wow. And uh, which, which casino or room is that in? It's at New York, New York. They okay. built a theater for it. Um, it's a 1,200-seat theater. Man. And that's like six nights a week? Five nights. Five nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do two a night. So those two days, you really need it to recover. You know? Man. Wow. Yeah. So, so you moved to Vegas for that gig? Yeah, it was just the next thing in line. They, uh, when they called, it was perfect timing. And it was a two-year contract. And I figured, well, I'll check it out. Mm-hmm. And then every year it was a uh, sure I'll keep going I'll keep going and <laughs> <laughs> here I am 
Where were you before that? I was living in Los Angeles. Okay. And yeah. did, like, did you grow up around there or go to school there? No, I was born in Philly. Okay. And, and uh, uh, went to high school in New York. My mom got remarried. Mm-hmm. Moved to New York. And then uh, around in my 30s, around 30, I moved to uh, Los Angeles. Then I came out to Vegas when I was uh, 39. 38, 39. Okay, so you were you were in LA for a, a good eight or nine year run. Yeah, yeah, cool. I was I was there for five years and and just recently moved to Atlanta about a year ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was here during that whole time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, what um what was the what was the climate in Los Angeles like, and what was your career there like, such that you were willing to pack up and leave for Vegas? Well, the climate was good. I, I uh, the gig I was doing before I left for Vegas, I was playing with Joe Sample, with mm-hmm. pianist, and uh, I had pretty much finished a three year run with him. You know, sometimes run things run their course, mm-hmm. and it was trio too. So <laughs> after a while, it's like, oh, okay, that thing. You know, you're playing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, and then Sir called mm-hmm. almost the perfect timing that I would be willing to do that. You know? Right. Also, right. I've been traveling so much with Joe and other artists. Um, and, and actually, when I was in L.A., I, I was traveling a lot. So I was um, in L.A. and other places during that right, time. Right, right. But uh, it was perfect timing to just check out something else, you know. Right. Um, how, how did you get on uh, Cirque du Soleil's radar? Like you say, you got the call for this thing. How, how did they know about you? Well, in my case, they were having uh, auditions in Los Angeles at SIR, and a good friend of mine was rehearsing with another artist that whole week. And this guy was the type of guy he'll talk and get to know anybody. And by the end of the week, he, they just asked him, you know, we, ha- we have two shows coming and we really don't have anybody on the drums. Do you know anybody? And he said, well, what do you need? And uh, they described, and he said, that's the boy. Oh, <laughs> sorry, that's a text. No, that's okay. Oh, wait. They said, uh, let me turn off my phone. But they said uh, this, that, and the other. This is what we're looking for. And my buddy said, well, the only guy I know that does all of that is my, my buddy Larry. Mm-hmm. And they called. I was just home. And they said, can you come to SIR and do some auditioning? And I said, sure, when? Oh, right now. <laughs> I only lived about 15. Sorry. No, it's okay. Multitask. Yeah, I there know. Um, I only lived about 15 minutes away, so I just grabbed my stick bag and went in, and I was in there for an hour. Wow. Yeah. So, and when, and you I, say, when you say, like, we, we need a guy who can do all this stuff, who do you know? What is all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, obviously, all the different styles mm-hmm. um, of music, so you can run that whole gamut. Right. Pop, pop rock, funk, Latin, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> all the Latin styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, even and classical and uh, different um, sensibilities like that, and then also somebody who's just uh, willing to, you know, work hard, uh, um, take direction, yeah, and and uh, be generous. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a word that Cirque likes to use, especially in the creation process of any show, but all throughout, you know, you have to be generous. Yeah. Talk talk more about that because that's that, that's a word that I like also in in the musical context to be musical musically generous as a as a performer as a, yeah. a colleague. What does that mean? 
Well, generosity means you're not withholding anything. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't have any special nuggets I'm going to save for something else. You know, right. everything I can do, everything I can add to uh, the situation, uh, generosity would mean I'm just going to offer it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and also generosity means like getting your ego out of the way. Right. That kind of thing. Because uh, especially, you know, there's such a large group. You know, not just the band. We have 11 people, but then the cast is like another 40 or 50 or whatever it was Man. back then. And <laughs> so things are moving fast. And, you know, the last thing they need to worry about is the drummer has a problem with, you know, repeating this section. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but also, you know, throughout my career, too, it's like I've worked with lots of great producers and stuff like that. And they sit down and, and um, so what do you got? <laughs> right. You get in that habit of offering up stuff, but also what you have to have is kind of interesting and supportive. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk about working with with musical directors in in the context of a show like Cirque du Soleil, or or you know, it's I, I it's not unlike playing a musical on Broadway. Um, uh, talk about your, your relationship with with musical directors. Has it been the same MD for the whole show? Um, no. We went, we've gone through three okay. over the 13 and a half years, and each one was different. Mm-hmm. And each one challenged me in different ways, hmm. you know, sometimes musically, but also personality-wise. Mm-hmm. You know? So the most important thing is to realize who your boss is. Right, <laughs> right. So, if you want to keep a job, it's a good idea to, uh, you know, take your cues and, and uh, I don't know, be supportive, generous, and right. the ego thing. The, the concept of a musical director, I, I think, is is something that not all drummers may be familiar with because, you know, when, when you're coming up, you hear about working for an artist or working for a producer or working for an engineer or a band leader or whatever. But a, a musical director is uh, a more ambiguous term to some people, and it kind of it kind of encompasses all those things because all of the calls that a producer or an engineer or a conductor or a, a you know a leader artist might yeah. make are are in the the MD's purview to make. Yeah. Um, well, for me, what I've had to learn throughout my career, and I'll just repeat it, is finding out who my boss is. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I worked for artists that have a musical director. You know what I mean? Right. So, and I've been asked to do all kinds of crazy stuff. So. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just learning how to follow direction, but also adding something to the mix. I don't want to be invisible. Right. It's important to have an opinion so that, like, you know, when they say, well, what do you think? You don't just go, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not offering up anything. Some people enjoy that or want that, but that's never been my style. Right. Did you have a hard time like figuring out how and when to do that? Because I think, you know, a, a band member's ability to do that, um, you know, is dependent on a lot of things. It's dependent on how long that person's been around or, you know, the personalities involved. Um, what are what are some sort of tips that you can give people as to how to navigate that relationship and how much you should contribute? Well, everybody's different, but in my case, <laughs> uh, shut my mouth. <laughs> Until further some, notice. <laughs> yeah, I have something to say about everything. And mm-hmm. so over the years, I realized that, you know, my mouth might be getting in the way of, of 
the production. Right. You know, production means you're taking something and moving forward. Mm -hmm. Right. You're producing something. You're building something. So, you know, uh, trial and error. You know, yeah. you open your mouth and you see, oh wait, I don't have a job anymore. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Goes from that dream to oh wait, nobody's really responding anymore, or oh wait, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's just. Uh, you know, I remember taking one gig and I was replacing a drummer and everyone that was on the gig basically was saying, do you talk a lot uh, <laughs> and you close your eyes when you play? So, you know, after, over ex having experience, I realized, well, the last guy was probably talking a lot mm -hmm. and had his eyes closed and the guy whose gig it was didn't like that. Yeah. So for at least the six, first six months of that gig, I don't think I spoke much. Right. It was hard. Right. <laughs> I was just... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had eagle eyes on this guy. Yeah, yeah. Know, like, to the point where I'm sure he's looking up, checking to see if I'm looking at him. He's like, why is, why is this guy always looking at me? <laughs> right, right. So, you take your cues, you know. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. Uh, during my time in L.A., I played at Disneyland for four years. Oh, um, Run into Jimmy Ford. Oh, yeah, man. He worked on my drums. I love Jimmy. I went to high school with Jimmy. Did you really? Yeah. Man, what a sweetheart. Thank yeah. You. Everybody check out Ford drums, man. Jimmy builds beautiful drums. Yeah, yeah. I, um, have, I have one around here. Do somewhere. you really? Yeah. A, a snare? Yeah. Oh, oh cool, yeah. cool. I couldn't not have a Jimmy Ford snare. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, talking about like taking direction and keeping your mouth shut, you know, Disneyland was a, a crash course in that for me, um, because I, like you, I think I'm I'm an opinionated dude and not real shy about about giving my opinion. Um, you know, and obviously you try not to do it in a rude or aggressive way, but I just you know for most of my life operated on the assumption that people were interested in my opinion, <laughs> yeah. um, which you know I, I found definitely not to be the case at, at Disneyland. Um, but the thing I noticed was that the more the more I kept my mouth shut and and let the people who were getting paid to make the decisions right. make the decisions, the more I enjoyed the gig. Well, it's more peaceful. It's less stress. Yeah. Um, uh, Disney's like Cirque. It's a corporation. So they have very strict guidelines as to how they want their workers, their employees to perform. Yes. But, you know, in a microcosm, I've made – you know, records with uh, artists that are well known, with producers that are, you know, and they're good friends of mine, well known, whatnot, and and uh, we'll do a take, and the producer goes, "All right, that's great," and okay, great. I walk in the control room, and the first thing out of my mouth was like, "I didn't really feel comfortable with. It. I, I didn't really." And and the artist is right next to him, and right. the producer is like looking at me like, <laughs> <laughs> "He likes it," yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know, keeping my mouth shut sometimes is important just on this one-on-one, -on -one, man. There's no corporation. There's nothing. I'm just working, making, you know, creating something. Right. You know, very right. personal. Man, they, they really want me to go for it. Yeah. You know, especially when you're making a record or cutting a song. And, the, like, the, the flip side of that is when you feel really great about something and, you know, oh. the producer or artist or whoever says, no, nah, I, I didn't like that. We got to do it again. Well, so, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But like you got to, you know, you got to not be not be hard on yourself when you don't feel great about it. And, you know, right. not congratulate yourself too much when you feel good about it, because that might not be the one. The thing that's confounding uh, is when you listen to the playback and it's not happening. 
and you think it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and then you ask, and then you say, well, what's, what could we do? What's, what? Either you get, I don't really know, but you got to do something else. Mm-hmm. They might point out things that either I like or they want me to change. And, you know, especially younger, when I was younger and had less facility, less things in my arsenal, I maybe not, maybe I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Or even to this day, if they want me to play the craziest, thrashiest speed metal stuff, because right. that's what the artist wants. At this point, I just say, well, you got to call somebody else. <laughs> right. I can, I can lay it down. I can play double bass, but if you want, <laughs> that's, yeah. there's always something, man. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Give me the lay of the land in Las Vegas right now. What, what kind of gigs are out there? Are there, are there more gigs than there used to be? Are there less? Um, what, mm. what is the climate there right now? Well, it's kind of in a downturn. A lot of the uh, uh, production, well, a lot of the Broadway-style shows, some, uh, not a lot, but some of them have closed this year mm-hmm. um, uh, or closing by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of freaky. It was a good uptick for like the last four or five years. Um, the lounge thing, which was the bread and butter in this town, yeah. Uh, yeah. We play covers or even originals, but you'd be playing in a lounge situation in the hotels. That's that's pretty much dissipated over the last ten years or even more, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, the climate is is great uh, because there's a lot of great musicians. There's a lot to do, mm-hmm. um, but I think the climate in Vegas is similar to everywhere else in the world. You know, it's uh, there's pockets of people that are very successful, and there's pockets of people that are scuffling and there's pockets of people that are in the mid level. Um, right. You know, my take on that always is just, you know, we're musicians. I mean, you know, we, we don't have a choice. Yeah. We have to play, man. Right. Uh, even if we have gigs, you know, that aren't playing, we're not playing music. Mm-hmm. We're still have that heart. It's still going to draw us back. Right. And as far as which pocket you end up in, in Vegas, whether you're busy or, or scuffling or, or whatever, does that have to do with how long you've been there or what your skill set is? Or yeah, always. But I mean, look, if my show closed tomorrow, I'll start scuffling. Right. right? Just got to rebuild and and um, go out and play and network. And uh, I think the 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 goal of most guys, gals in town, uh, they would want to find a gig like a show, mm-hmm. production or an artist or who knows what. So that they're having that steady income, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I probably just hope for the best, then, and see if another show opens up. Or, you know, for me, there's a lot of all kinds of different alternative uh, to travel. You know, different alternatives in music to travel, and I teach a lot now and stuff like that. Yeah, you're on the the faculty at UNLV, correct? Yeah, that's been great. How long you been there? I just started. I. I uh, I took my master's there like 2011 to 2014 mm-hmm. and just with that intent to really, you know, hopefully teach at the university, but also develop my teaching because mm-hmm. I've been taught so much um, by some of the greatest teachers, you know, ever. Yeah. And um, I have so much that I can offer, but I had no clue how to really deliver. Mm-hmm. I mean, I taught before, but I pretty much had focused only on performing and stuff like that. And um, having a method is is uh, important. You know yeah. how how to reach 
especially kids, you know, I'm older and I mean, I graduated college in 86. So mm-hmm. college was a lot different then. Yeah. So going to get my master's was also like, well, how do you look up stuff, you know, at the music library? <laughs> I used to, you know, listening at the music library at my, my college was like, put the disc on there and drop the needle, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the wax, you know? Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Who, who were some of your teachers that you studied with? Well, I went to uh, high school of music and art in New York. When mm-hmm. I got to New York, I went to high school, and Justin DiCiocio was the guy there. And, and um, my high school was just unbelievable. The, the guys that were there when I was there, uh, it was like uh, Charlie Drayton, Sterling Campbell, um, um, Tony Lewis. And the generation before us was Omar Hakim and Kenny Washington and wow. Marcus Miller. You know, I had tapes of the jazz band in 1976. <laughs> And it's Marcus and Omar's playing percussion because Kenny was the upperclassman. Steve Jordan was there, you know. It was, Jesus. So I went there, and Justin's the 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 thread through all that. And he, he's he's been at Manhattan School, uh, running the jazz department for the last fifteen years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, and then after that, I went to Eastman. So I studied with Mr. Beck, John Beck, mm. classical and otherwise, you know. And, yeah. And um, so between those two, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. You know, the, the, the knowledge they have and also how they impart that knowledge. I was teaching a lesson a few weeks ago and I was repeating myself like a good educator, you know. Mm-hmm. And my student <laughs> looked and he said, you know, you said that four times. And I thought, that's great because Justin DiCiocio used to do that to me. Every lesson, he'd just have a couple things he wants to impart and he just keeps hammering the same, you understand, you understand, understand. It's like, <laughs> but it, he, I really needed it to be yeah. drilled to my brain. Mm-hmm. I did get it. So, you know, like I said, I, I, I realized that it's like I'm doing kind of what those guys did with me, which is very cool. Right. So talk, talk a little bit about um, sort of the, what, what uh, comprises your curriculum at UNLV. Because um, I, I always recommend to high school students or to you know, college students who are wanting to go to grad school, find a school in a city that you want to play in. Like, you know, kind of decide what city you might like to live for a while and and make a living in and find a school there and go. Um, I I went to grad school at University of Missouri, Kansas City, and and there was a great bridge between, you know, the the faculty there and the pro scene in Kansas City, especially the jazz scene. Um, So I'm wondering at, at UNLV, how does the fact that you're in Las Vegas with this huge infrastructure for music affect what you teach there? Well, it affects what I teach there. Um, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, UNLV uh, in the catalog and all that is is pretty much promoted and uh, as a jazz school, you know. But mm-hmm. the consciousness now uh, is that it's going to become more of a contemporary and jazz music school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave Loeb there, he's actually on sabbatical exploring that more and more because that's the whole hook you know you come to UNLV you're in Vegas your yeah. teachers are all on the shows doing the scene not only can you you know study with them and so my method if they defined it more as being contemporary which i think that's where it's heading mm-hmm. i'd probably spend a little more time there as well cuz right now i'm teaching you know jazz and coordination and my whole concept of uh, how to create musicality and stuff like that you know i really was able to figure out and come up with something that's really neat. I'm mm-hmm. excited. I'm te- excited to teach it. But at any rate, um, 
yeah, I mean, if you're happening to the point where I think you're, you're capable, you could be in, you could end up subbing on my show. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And all the students uh, and graduates, recent graduates, they're the ones filling out the, the bands and orchestras on the strip. Mm-hmm. And there still are some gigs. It's not like, you know, nothing's happening. Right. And then there is a scene, there's a jazz scene, and there is a, you know, I don't, I hate the label, but it's not jazz. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you call it. You know, it's, it's elements of everything. But uh, there's a whole bunch of guys doing really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's a rock scene too. I mean, you know, a lot of rock bands are coming out of Vegas. That was another question I had. Like, in in addition to the strip and all those gigs, what is what is the local scene like? What are the generative sort of uh, venues, and what artists and bands are are coming out of Vegas? Well, I could, you know, just imagine Dragons and uh, uh, help me. I can't. I'm just thinking of the album, name of their album. Oh, I can't. I can't help you. It's your town, man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's so funny. I'm blanking on their name, but at any rate, they're a major rock band. It'll come to me in about a half an hour. Yeah, yeah. After but, we're done, uh, <laughs> you know, um, there's ro- lots of rock clubs and like any scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few places to play jazz. Uh, there's a whole bunch of guys that aren't in school or doing shows that are just you know creating and writing music and and signing record deals and varying degrees and putting their music out and stuff like that. You know, it always, always went back to what I was saying before. It's like once you have that bug, once you are involved, it just comes out of you. So, and I don't think that'll ever go away. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what happens. Yeah, yeah. Expressive people that want to express themselves that way are always going to have to do it. Right. And I always use the word have because it's not like a choice. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's never been a choice for me. Oh. Um those of us that do this for a living, you know, it's not you better uh, love it, man. <laughs> what now? You better love it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I forgot who said it and I've I've brought it up before on this podcast, but there's a great quote from an educator who was I think it was like a jazz master who was giving a clinic and and he told a room full of students if there's anything else you're interested in doing. Oh, it's Tommy Igo. Was was it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It sounds exactly. What, I know where you're going. <laughs> so do it. yeah, yeah I, do it. not if you a, want to use it. Get out. Yeah, right? not a jazz master per se, but yeah, Tommy Igo. Um, <laughs> he. he uh, uh, I was. I was thinking it was older, like like Art Blakey or something. Well, we're, um, we're kind of old. No, but <laughs> no, um, but that sounds like him. You know? Yeah, he like, said, if there's anything else you're interested in doing, go do it. Go do it, man, because this thing will waste you. Yeah. If, if you don't have that that uh, disposition, mm-hmm. I have friends that have stepped out of the game, mm-hmm. you know, to do something else, and said, "I'm not going to play any more music." You know, guys I grew up with or whatever, they always end up going back. Do they? You know, on some sh- in shape, some shape or form. Yeah, right. Absolutely. They don't leave yeah. it behind entirely. No, I don't think. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do know people that stop playing, but they're always. There's always that soft spot, man. Right, right, right. But yeah, if you don't, if you don't have it, you don't. If you don't love it, get out for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've lived in uh, a few different cities, um, and every one of them had a price of admission. There was there was good stuff and bad stuff about every city that I've lived in. Um, what is uh, what is the price of admission in Las Vegas? What do you have to deal with? Oh, Vegas is a tough town. 
so uh, there's not a lot of time for BS, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, and and I grew up in Philly and New York, and you'd think, well, you know, those are big cities and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I find Vegas to be pretty even tougher in mm-hmm. a way. Like people are very skeptical about, you know, what's this guy doing? What's he trying to get? What you, you know, there's there's a lot. It, if you come with ulterior motive, like I'm going to go to, sh- I'm going to show up and I'm going to take that thing. Or I'm going to the the it's going to shut down on you immediately. Right. You know, right. so whereas in LA, if you show up, I, I found and I, when I came to Los Angeles, I had a lot of credits and a lot of stuff that I had done in New York. That was pretty attractive to get me hired. And I took meetings with producers and talked to guys on the phone and they were all like, it was almost like they were going to hire me in four hours. Mm-hmm. They were so nice. And so, because they were just, it was like they're trying to engage or trying Whereas in Vegas, you don't run into that. You, know, you call up, you're trying to hustle. If they can, they feel it. There's the hustle's over. Yeah. So, like any town, you want to open any doors, you just got to go play. There's mm-hmm. places to play. There's lots of there's jam sessions and 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 you just go play. Mm-hmm. And Show if you up. play your ass off, people notice. Right. I've seen it happen. I you know when I I hadn't played jazz music in like 20 years i was pretty much in, you know involved in pop and all you know but straight ahead and big band i did a lot of that at eastman and stuff like mm-hmm. that and uh out of the blue somebody called me to sub because he knew i went to eastman in a rehearsal band and then that's how i cultivated my whole thing but i would see guys come into town to play in this rehearsal big band and the ones that could really play like the old timers in the big band would stand up and go you're gonna work a lot in this town <laughs> <laughs> You can see it immediately. Yeah. Whereas for me, it's somewhat of a slow burn. I've, I've, uh, I've been connecting and stuff like that, but I've been kind of, you know, uh, connected to my show so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, getting out there and hanging out. It's also, I, I have kids and stuff, so I'm waking up early, taking them to school. And right. I play two shows. Hanging out afterwards sometimes is tough. Yeah. Especially yeah. the kids are young. Now they're a little older. I get out. I've been getting out. And, uh, and, you know, spreading my wares. And- yeah, that never ends, man. Like, I, you know, you've been you've been in Vegas for 13 years and you've you've had the gig and, uh, you know, you still you still have to get out there and show your face and make the hang sometimes so people oh, don't forget yeah. about you. Well, they laugh, too, because like, oh, Larry, <laughs> oh, here's Larry, he's hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's sadly, you know, like if you lose a steady gig, you're going to be hanging out a lot. Mm-hmm. And um Everyone knows it. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, like I said, if you can play, if you bring it to the table, people want to play with you. Yeah. People want to work with you. People will hire you. Right. You know. So you, you, you took that in a completely different direction than I intended it, which was of course. Which was great. <laughs> um because there was there was great info in there. But what I meant when I was talking about the price of admission was just day-to-day life in that city. In LA, you got to deal with the traffic. In Kansas City, I had to deal with the fucking weather. Like, what is there something about living in Vegas that that makes day-to-day life just a little rough? Oh, that's yeah. Um, well, I mean, you mentioned mentioned the weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, four or five months out of the year, it's scalding. Yeah. <laughs> so it creates kind of a, a vibe. <laughs> nope. the, the heat you spend, does you spend a lot of time indoors so you mm-hmm. get that shut in feeling mm-hmm. 
you know, because it's really hot. Like at night, it's still hot, Ugh. baking hot. I worked here in 94 once for a month. And I remember walking, it was at the old Desert Inn, I would walk to the gig and it was in July and it would be, you know, 105 degrees and I'm walking and I'd never experienced anything like that. Yeah. So it's somewhat oppressive. So that affects the vibe, mm -hmm. the price of admission. You know, those are things that, you know, I, when I was in New York, I was carting my drums down Bleecker Street in the snow, right? <laughs> After I found a parking spot three blocks oh, down. Yeah, yeah. This is like a different thing, man. You, you sweat so much that you... Have to, you better drink three liters of water, you mm -hmm. know, in yeah. the next hour, or you're going to get dehydrated. Right. Other than that, I don't know. I mean, the price of admission, uh, cost of living is pretty low there, right? Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. good. Yeah, um, much lower than Los Angeles or New York, or yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like at certain times. You know, my wife and I would look at each other and go, maybe we'd go back to New York or <clears throat> it's just so cost prohibitive. Yeah. You know, kids and all that stuff. Even more so now, I think. Yeah, it's crazy now. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, all my friends that live there, the New York that, that I knew is gone. You're right. Right. You're, yeah. you're definitely not the first person I've, I've heard no. uh, say that. <laughs> no. and even all the studios, the whole, everything has changed completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have my studio and everybody's got their studio and. And uh, I enjoy it, but the whole scene that I knew when I was there was, you know, that's all gone. Speaking of your studio, what, what, do, you, what do you got back there and what do you do in there? Well, I have these drums and um, uh, this is more of the pop uh, rock and drum set. And mm -hmm. I do a lot of uh, internet drumming for friends over the years i've made a lot of you know relationships with producers and writers and stuff like that so there still is a need for real drums out yeah. there yeah yeah and so the, they'll send me files and generally that type of stuff uh i do here it's all mic'd up and then over there and behind that is a jazz kit mm -hmm. i teach lessons in here as well and um yeah it's it's uh you know, with the gear available now, it's unbelievable the the sonic quality that you can get. Right, it's just getting cheaper and easier every day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I walk into the studio and and I see the same gear that I'm using. Right. You know, they're using Apogee conversion and and uh, you know, uh, API mic pre's or you know, I don't have any uh, Neve mic pre's. I wish I did. <laughs> right. <laughs> I remember when I was buying uh, stuff and, and I was interested in mic pre's. I wrote all my friends and, you know, guys that I, I respect and whatnot. And I would get these, you know, some guys are real tech heads and whatnot. And, you know, really well-known drummers, you know what I mm -hmm, mean? Mm -hmm. I'd get paragraphs of this, that, and the other. And one guy, Steve Ferroni, he just wrote back one word. He just wrote Neve. Bye-bye, <laughs> 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 Neve, that's it. <laughs> and he was right. You know, I can go through all this stuff, but if I had some 1073s all in a row, I'd be happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, have so. you have you done much uh, touring work out of Las Vegas? Is that I mean, you obviously have to you know sub out your show to do that. But yeah, Cirque is an interesting animal with the subbing thing. They their whole philosophy is like, look, we hired you. We didn't hire a drummer, so mm -hmm. we want you at every show. Right. Which um, that's a difficult pill to swallow, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I first started the job, you know there. 
the other two Cirque shows that were here had a percussionist. So if something happened to the drummer, the percussionist could move over and they could play the show. Mm-hmm. But my show, there's no percussionist. It's just a lot of uh, loops and automation and whatnot. And, uh, and after six months, I told them we need to start a sub type scene with Cirque because it didn't exist until then. Mm-hmm. With all their Cirque shows, their tradition is like, this is the circus, you know, you play. Right. You know? Unless you're dead, you're going to work. <laughs> and I said, that's fine, but I'm playing 10 shows a week, you know, f- pretty much every week of the year. Yeah. We have three week, four weeks off, mm. which I'm not complaining. It's great. But the responsibility, especially in my show, I, I had to really um, have a sub thing implemented. And, uh, but, yeah, I, there were a couple, well, a bunch of different times where either artists I had worked with or um, – Guys I worked with, they were working with an artist, and uh, one was really sweet, but it was like a six-month commitment or something. And I, I tried. I went to the artistic director and said, you know, so-and-so wants me to do this and that and the other. He says, well, we need you here. Right. And it's not like they don't pay me money. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I want to work within the parameters of that, mm-hmm. if I don't, I can leave. But then there would be no guarantees that I could come back. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll find something else. It reminds me of a funny quote from Duke Ellington. And of course I saw it on Facebook. So who knows if it was really Duke Ellington, but he said, you know, people, people ask me how I create loyalty among musicians. And he said, I pay them money. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, especially in a situation and you're, we're talking about working drummer. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was in Los Angeles, it was, um, there was, there was a lot and there always will be, everywhere a lot of gigs to play for connections and exposure yeah they pay you nothing mm-hmm. but you get to work with so-and-so and you get to be seen at such and such a place or whatever and mm-hmm. you know for a few years i was doing that and you know it definitely helps with networking and all that but i think it was the year 1996 my new year's resolution is if you see larry playing drums he's getting paid <laughs> <laughs> that was, and <laughs> and uh you know yeah. i had Stick to that. Yeah. Can you, can you come down and do this, that, and the other? What is it? Hey. Yeah. You know, I had to put the word out. It's like, I, I'm not just the free guy. Right. Right. So, yeah, it was tough, you know. Have you stuck to it ever since? Yeah, well, I, you know, because of that extreme, things shifted. Mm-hmm. I, once you put out there to the universe like well this is how it's going to be but you know if somebody says hey we're going to jam and this and it's uh happens to be somebody you really admire Mm -hmm. and you know it leads to jamming leads to having his gig right (laughs) you don't say i'll jam with you for 20 bucks an hour it's ridiculous yeah a a friend of mine at disneyland uh, a great singer named melanie collins um we Mm. we were talking about this about like you know, what do you, what do you say yes to if, if the money's not there? And she said, uh, I have, I have three things. There's gotta be good music, good hang or good money. And, Mm -hmm. and I got to hit two out of three. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, Oh yeah. I mean, two nights ago I did hang out. (laughs) A good friend of mine is in town and he's one of the best guitar players I've ever heard. And most people would agree with me, you know, and and he and his buddy, who has a studio in town, just wanted to just hang out and play. Right. I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop the presses and go do that. You know? <laughs> it didn't occur to me how much money I needed. Yeah. And I just God, I want to play with this guy. I love playing with this guy. Mm-hmm. So. 
sounds like you were able to like implement, you know, a sub program for your gig. Um, oh, it's on all the gigs now. Right. Yeah, no, I was the first one. They had never heard of that. <laughs> uh, for for Cirque or in Vegas? Cirque. For Cirque. Cirque. Okay. Yeah. Cirque is its own animal. It's, they they've uh, they have their own rules and their. Oh, it's a yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you um how does that how does that program work you 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 pick a sub you train them they auto-shows. oh no god no it's a whole well i did at this point you know, i can find guys that i think are capable but they have to still go through like the whole circ audition process and right send in paperwork a tape or this and that yeah circ just has their way of doing things and I have a feeling a lot of it is to weed out people that aren't interested in doing any hard work mm-hmm. you know because yeah. You know, um, a lot of guys aren't willing to put together a video audition reel. Yep. It just, unless you pay me, kind of thing. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, they say, no, we, this is what we need, blah, 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 blah. And the ones that deliver, it's like, well, okay, we know this guy's going to come through on other levels. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Because they ask a lot for you from, from, from people. Right. You know? It was the same at Disney. Like, the audition process yep. there... Um, you know, they, they put you through a lot of hoops. They make you, you know, read lines and do, you know, 64, yeah, right. 64 counts of dance moves and, oh. <laughs> and sing and, and all this stuff. And, you know, and the gig ends up being very little of all that stuff, but oh, they yeah. just, they just want to see what you're willing to do. Right. And, and especially at Disney, your, your willingness to just like be goofy and have fun and positive right yeah. and and not take yourself seriously like they don't care about whether you can actually dance no whether like they're looking for how much are you committing to <laughs> no, it's the exact same thing in my audition they had me skipping dancing singing all yeah. kind of acting all kinds of stuff and um it was real clear to me that that's what they were doing mm-hmm. like they wanted to see where the blocks were with me right. so i just showed up for it i was just uh like one of the things that I love to tell guys and gals about auditioning for them is that, you know, you go and you play, there's always something wrong. <laughs> you know, like either the gear isn't right or, or they just start asking you to do things. And one of the things that, that's built into the audition was like, uh, okay, we want you to play along with this. You play along with it. Okay, I want you to do this, that, or you do this, that. I want you to, and I was, and then you go, can I have a piece of paper? I'll just write it, jot it down. And then, no. <laughs> And as soon as he said no, the way he said it, I said, oh, okay. <laughs> right. They want to see what I'm going to do next. Right. So I just went, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Count it off. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like in Apollo 13 when they're doing the, the simulation and Gary Sinise is trying to land the thing. And, and in the control room, they're like, let's, let's shut down some thrusters on him. Let's see what happens. <laughs> That's exactly it. Let's see what happens. And uh, not a bad way to audition. It's it's funny because guys would call me uh, after the audition, and and I mean you know real good players and mm-hmm. whatnot, just angry as hell. Man, the keyboard was like tuned a quarter step. I don't know what you know. The velocity <laughs> was all at one twenty seven. I couldn't even play. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. I said, I told you when you go in there, something's going to be wrong, just so that they can and just be cool with it. Yeah, if yeah. you really want the gig, I t- and. Yeah, but they're crazy. I said, <laughs> I told you. <laughs> yeah. And the reason, the reason they do that is not to be dicks. The reason they do that is because on every single gig, something goes wrong. Oh, man. On our gigs? It- <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes it's, it's not so – it's serious business, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're dealing with circus art. So people get injured and yeah. 
and I've experienced it, you know, and uh, so what are you going to do next? Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, are you going to make it all about you or are you going to support the production at that point? Right. Right. Know, they need you to do whatever they want you to do. Yeah. Almost, and, almost every gig at some point is going to require you to soldier on under oh, adverse yeah. conditions. Oof, <laughs> I've been on, yeah, you've been on the road and, and, and uh, I remember sitting in a, the hotel in New Orleans in the lobby waiting for the transport to the gig. And I, I think it was like 104, 105 fever, you know, Whoa. just delirious, man, yeah, and yeah. drenched, you know, mm-hmm. and had to play. Right. I'll never forget that gig because it was like a Fellini movie. <laughs> it was at the, um, the Jazz and Heritage Festival, which is wild, man. Those crowds are amazing. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there playing and I just see people like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, am I? <laughs> Getting the tunnel vision and the. <laughs> oh, man, the shapes, the hope song. Yeah, you just, right? Oh, the man. Screams, man. Yeah. Um, so talk about uh, the, your, your gig at Zumanity specifically. What kind of setup are you playing? How has it changed over the years? You mentioned you're, you're working with loops and samples. and Yeah. Uh, what, what, is your, what is your show like? Well, I mean, you know, it's a standard drum set. And uh, I, li- I like to have a Rata. I play DW drums, so they make an Octobon kind of vibe. I really like that sound and, mm-hmm. you know, about five symbol, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I have a drum cat that's triggering computer uh, loaded. I use Re- uh, Ableton. Mm-hmm. I started with Reason, you know, yeah. just playing sampler on Reason. I have a sound card that's fast enough to just do that. It's like a Motu. And uh, so I'm triggering some samples, some sounds, and a couple of tunes I'm playing uh, effects, things like that. Primarily for me, playing drum set. That's kind of how it ended up. When we mm-hmm. were in creation of the show, there was actually some question how acoustic was it going to be. And they kept throwing, the composer kept throwing stuff that was somewhat acoustic oriented. And he needed the shading of acoustic instruments, not samples being played. And I told him, I said, I don't really think you can pull this off musically mm-hmm. uh, with pads, with samples. Yeah. So we ended up using me as an exclusively as a drummer. Uh, playing acoustic drums and so there's a a, a band leader that's running uh, Ableton and so then there's all kinds of loops and, and right so you actually yeah. had a hand in the conception of this show oh big time and we did a big uh, reconception I guess uh, mm-hmm. two years ago they really changed the show a lot uh, musically and otherwise um, and yeah they I don't even want to say they lean on me. I'm just part of the unit. So, I, right. you know, and from my experience, I could see what needed to be done and just do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of the thing. You know, you don't wait for them to ask. You see the terrain and then you just offer it up. If they don't need it, it goes away. Right. That's the other part, too. When it goes away, you don't go. <laughs> <laughs> Man, when we were making this show, it was nuts. We would work for two, three days on a really intense piece of music or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And. No, nah, we don't like it. Nah. Poof. Right. <laughs> you know, and I'm up on like programming and creating sounds. And yeah, a lot of some of the stuff that I make in my studio or what in my computer ends up in Ableton with the band leader. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or I end up playing it. It's always different. Um, so, but my setup hasn't really changed other than the drums themselves. I've changed out drums with DW's help a few mm-hmm. times. You know, that company's evolved so much in terms yeah. of their offerings, uh, I was just talking to John Good about it because I'm going to put another kit in. And the sound guys are so excited when I bring a new one in because this will be the fourth one. It's always an upgrade. 
Yeah. Sonically, yeah. which is kind of hard. It's kind of unbelievable, really. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mostly because of the shell configuration or the wood. Right. You know, he right. experiments with so many different things. Mm-hmm. What are you so, playing right now? Uh, right now is the, the maple, uh, the chair. Um, yeah, it's maple mahogany. Uh-huh. He, put, he came up with that a few years ago. And we're in the process of changing it over to uh, um, Purple Heart. But, so wow. that's that's going to be their new thing at NAM, and I, among other things, they have some stuff that's kind of nuts that I I can't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I have to kill you all. <laughs> but no, Purple Heart. I, I have a jazz drum set here that I made the jazz sizes with. It's a very hard wood, and they're making ply, you know, plies out of it and making shells. Mm-hmm. Uh, no reinforcement hoops and. Um, so is it like a, a single ply steam bent thing or no, a, okay. no, it's plywood, you know, yeah, yeah. He does all the different grain configurations. Uh, uh-huh. they do. And, and, um, uh, I've never heard of purple heart wood. Where does that come no, from? Uh, uh, Brazil, I think huh. it's Brazil. It's purple wood. That's so cool. It's very hard. Yeah. And the sound is, um, the way I describe it, it's like very modern. So mm-hmm. you got a lot of that high end and, and um, high frequency attack, mm-hmm. really mellow at the same time. Mm-hmm. The maple mahoganies do that too. Yeah. This is even more. So it's the perfect configuration for my show because, like I said, sometimes it's very earthy, yeah. acoustic, and then other times I'm just playing with. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. I mean, we're like, I mean, it's, since the refresh, they call it of the show. I mean, they added a lot of low end, eight hundred eight kind of stuff, and yeah. And, I, and one thing that I did add, add is on. It ended up just being one song, but I'm triggering a kick. Oh, cool! From my kick. So there's a kick, like a really low eight hundred eight kind of thing on the band leader's rig, and then I'm triggering another kind of crunchy thing and my kick as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know when. When my subs play, I do go and watch the show. Right. And it's like, just <laughs> <laughs> you're just sitting out there smiling like, yeah. oh, <laughs> them drums just sound good. Check, run that one and I'll just hit the kick and I get, <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Man, uh, the DW, um, the DW wood finishes, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, that, Every high-end kit of, of, you know, no matter what the brand, everybody makes great drums. Everybody yeah. makes great sounding drums. But I'm, I'm a sucker for, for natural wood grain. And for my money, nobody does it as good as DW. Like oh, the, the, the stuff they bring out in those wood grains and the different types of woods they use that, you know, that yeah. they were the first to use for those outer yeah. veneers. It's just well, John, eye-popping. He, he just um, – he's – you know, he just dreams about that stuff. You know? <laughs> I mean, sometimes he wakes up and just writes down what he thought of and goes back to bed. You know? wow. I mean, he's just, he's always pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. Boy, I wish I could tell you what's coming. Just pay attention. <laughs> I think they'll have it done by January, by now. We'll find out soon enough. It's nuts. It's, it's a, new, a new shell in construction? Terms, in terms, no, it's just the wood. In oh. terms of what they're doing, you're not going to believe it. You're gonna just go. What? <laughs> oh man! Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Because like, and they did all that stuff with like the diagonal wrap. That's, well, that's what I was telling you. They well, they twisted the outer, but also, um, you know, he has the VLT vertical grain, which is all the grain going this way, right? 
is what they're going to do with my Purple Heart kit for the show. Oh, that's so cool. Which is great because Purple Heart is so strong. It Because all the vertical – I have a vertical grain kit with the Magasser Ebony vertical yeah. layout. Oh, man. Where is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> but uh, it's maple. It, it was one of the first VLT kits. So it kind of gives, which mm-hmm. is really cool, but you have to be careful. Right. They'll split. Right. Purple Heart, it's so rigid and so hard. It really uh, suits itself well for the vertical grain. But vertical grain, all the grain going this way yeah. creates this insane amount of tone. Mm-hmm. It's like, boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I played a backline kit a couple of days ago on a gig that was um, the DW. Um, was it the Workshop series or the? Um, it's that exactly. that di- diagonal shell construction that you were talking oh, about. Because he has X, and then he has uh, HVLT, which is summer down and summer. Uh, yeah, right. I but, I uh, forgot which series it was, but I I looked inside, you know, uh-huh, through the through the clear head, and the grain was going diagonal, you know, up twisted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and man, those things sounded great. They well, he's lucky, you know. He's got all those. Uh, he can make shells at his factory, so right. It's, there's a lot of things that end up. They come out of the kiln. They put them on drum, make drums out of them, and no one hears about it. Right, right. Yeah, they're one of the few That's, companies like making their own shells at the factory. Yeah, yeah. pretty extraordinary. You touched on this a little bit, but. Um, People, uh, when when people talk about the you know the digital revolution and how it's affected the music industry, um, they're usually talking about the recording industry. But I I feel like that's affected live playing as well. Um, and coupling that with sort of the decline of unions and the musicians' union in particular, you've been in Las Vegas for thirteen years, and that is like basically the time span when. Uh, you know, musician. The musicians' union has kind of lost a lot of its pull in cities like New York and L.A. and and Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and there's just more and more digitization. Um, so how has that affected your gig and and kind of you know the overall musical community in Las Vegas? Well, digitization meaning using replacement instruments and not musicians, or yeah. Well, it affects every musician that would have gotten work because they're replaced <laughs> by a digital. Right. The facts of reasonable facsimile or unreasonable as it might be, you know. But, right. Um, yeah, of course it affects everywhere. I mean, in New York, especially where the union is somewhat strong, they're always having to fight that. What was that machine they came out with years ago? It was a, I forgot the name of it, but it would perform strings in real time. A guy would keep it in tempo and whatnot. I forgot what they called it. But, you know, they had, the, they had a huge strike. You know, mm-hmm. try to keep the make sure that this pit orchestra number stayed up. We don't have that sort of thing. You go, musicians go on strike, and the industry that hires musicians or entertainment, they just go, huh. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll just push um, play. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it affects uh, that. In in my case, um, they want a live band, especially as humanity. It's part of the show. It's part of the concept of the show. So. Right. Um, but in terms of the digitization or whatever, we uh, we embrace all of it. And um, like I said, you know, when we were making the show, if it was appropriate for it to be completely digital and samples, and then I would have gone with that. Mm-hmm. Musically, it wasn't. You know, right? I mean, that's why I still get calls to to do drums here in my little shack because just you need that thing that you know that humanism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> humanness. And, 
but it it I just try to stay open to whatever it is, man. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes I do tracks and I really spend time and get that pocket right with the even a temp track to help them get uh, a nice feel. Mm-hmm. And the composer's like, "Oh man, it sounds incredible. Your feel's insane." Blah 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 blah. blah. And then I get the mix and I can hear where they uh, auto uh, beat detected or, uh, or put stuff in the grid. Yeah, and that swank is gone. Right. So. It is just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it won't stay like this forever. You don't think so? No, never. It's yeah. always going to, everything is always coming back. It comes back in different shapes and forms, but no, music and art never stays in the same place. Mm-hmm. So. Well, but I, I meant you, you think that, that the, the automation and the. You oh, know, no, replace- that'll always be around. Yeah. <laughs> but how it's used and. Uh, to what degree and the aesthetic of it all, you know, I mean, right now, if you listen to pop radio, I can hear every vocal being corrected. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Bruno Mars is an incredible singer. Right. But they, I can still hear them using Melodyne or Autotune or whatever on, on him sometimes. And I'm like, well, why would you do that? Yeah, why? Well, it's an aesthetic, you know, it's yeah. just everything else sounds that way. Right. So, Kind of, I saw that 20 years ago. Even one artist I remember and uh, was listening to mixes of his record. Is it was, you know, the well-established group and uh, the vocals had that a eh, little bit of that. And yeah, well, everybody's doing it, so you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, my point is, after a while, people are going to get tired of that. Mm-hmm. It just happens. It goes back. So, will it go away completely? No, no. Yeah. But I don't know. You reminded me of one other thing I wanted to ask you about the show. Are are you visible to the audience? Yeah. yeah. So what what kind of a, a visual role do you play? <laughs> Very little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm visual. I'm kind of like the drummer up there, three stories high in this pod kind of thing. Uh-huh. And the lights are on me about sixty percent of the time. Mm-hmm. A part of the design of the show is like I just don't want to show the band at certain points. Right. Um, or I might not be completely in the dark. You can always see me, but I'm not featured. Right. Um, and again, that's like an ego thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. At a certain, I remember during creation, I, they were changing lights all the time. And then for long stretches, I felt like I was in the dark the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I just had to like, oh, well, <laughs> the dark. Right. <laughs> I'm not in a pit. I'm, I'm visible. And, um, you know, different director ideas things change all of a sudden i'm like it's white (laughs) (laughs) this was the part where i was picking my nose (laughs) turn those lights down right right (laughs) yeah so did you receive direction about like what to do physically or visually at any point no um and you know my showmanship kind of suffered i i to be quite honest with you uh there's so much playing involved um, when I first started this show, doing the show, some of the stuff's pretty rocking, and I was like, Man, my neck. Oh, wow. Oh, when you go out and play with a band on the road, you might do five shows a week Yeah. for four weeks, six weeks, maybe mm-hmm. two months. I'm talking, you know, it's a 90-minute it's a slamming show. It, you know, guys come in that sub, and they're just like, oh. <laughs> I've had to really figure out how to play it without hurting myself, you know. Yeah, talk more about that. Like, what what are some of the physical challenges that you've come across with this show? Attention, you know. Luckily, because I started with some good teachers uh, and learned some uh, 
um, good technique uh, ideas and concepts, um, I've been able to circumvent a lot of a lot of issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, tension is the is the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, so learning how to play, you know, and I get a lot of practice playing like the fifth number of this of this show, where by then everything is like this. Learning how to let all that go and play, get the same sound mm-hmm. without any tension. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big uh, let the head do the uh, work for you, mm-hmm. make the stroke. There's going to be some reaction, rebound, follow that rebound. Right. Don't slip it and pull it out. You know, yeah. every teacher I've ever had, you know, Mr. Beck to the point where it's like lift the sound out. It's always get inside the drum and lift it out. Yeah. Um, that's been very helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, how do I play this, get the same sound without being intense? And to be honest, I, when I was coming up, I knew all that stuff. But I also, when I was playing, I just wanted to have that feeling of intensity. So I put, even put tension into Right. Me. Yeah, yeah. And I thought if I was playing like a marshmallow, boy, that's kind of lame. Mm-hmm. It's not intense. There's no intensity. Right. I had to let go of that notion. Yeah. And learn how to get that sound, but not have that. Ugh. Right. Well, I think when you're young, like there's, there's two yeah. things. First of all, <laughs> you don't, you don't have the ears really to tell the difference, you know, between, between tension and, and looseness, you know, in, in your own sound and the sound you're getting out of the drums. Um, but your body is also kind of invincible. And if you want to abuse yeah. it, you know, oh, it'll, man. it'll bounce back the next day. So, you know, I've, I've noticed this, I'm, you know, I'm 36 and over the last few years, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm paying attention to the same thing. Like I'm noticing tension in different parts of my body, not just my hands or feet, but like in my jaw sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and oh, I'll oh. have to consciously just like, you know, this tension in my jaw is translating to the rest of my body and into my brain. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've got to be careful about that. And, and like you said, using, you know, using the rebound, mm-hmm. um, and just letting your hands flow. Um, one thing I've, I've always trying to keep <laughs> in the back of my mind when I play now is, is this thing Keith Carlock said about his stroke. Um, and it, it, he was talking about his, his signature stick and, and how it was designed for his stroke or whatever. But he said, yeah, when, whenever I play a different stick, I just don't get the right throw. Right. And the fact that he used the word throw, I, like I heard him say that, I was like, oh, that's, mm-hmm. you know, so I just started thinking of my stroke not as a stroke but as a throw. Right. Um, well, it's, it's whatever image works, you know. Yeah. A lot of times I think of Omar because I always feel when he plays it's so open and he's He's coming from that type of thing, but it's but it's not to the point where he's not laying into the drums at the same time. Right, it's that perfect balance. You know, to to be to be uh, clear though, there are times where tension and and um, all of that is so important. Mm-hmm. It's just for me on the long run of getting through ten shows a week. Yeah, I have to pace myself. I Can't. have to be aware of that stuff because what happens? You get tension, then you get injury. Right. You know, and then I get repetitive stress issues and all that stuff. And yeah. Luckily, because I have my training and, and, then, and realizing things like that, I'm able to continue on for 13 and a half years. And right. I don't really have, you know, I don't want to find a nice wood drum. I don't really want to jinx it, but um, good day, you know. And yeah. I'm 52, man. So mm-hmm. you know, when I took the Cirque gig, I, I really didn't know what kind of music it was going to be. They right. didn't tell me anything. Right. So I kind of thought it might be... 
<laughs> kind of thing and i'll just play off and, and honestly like i said i was playing with joe sample mm-hmm. the last few years it was kind of winding down i was playing like jazz trio and it was uh more acoustic oriented i had been playing so much pop and rock and funk and whatnot and kind of winding down i thought okay i guess this is where i'm going yeah <laughs> and i get on this gig and it's like so, yeah. Okay, it's on. Yeah, I had the same experience. Like in in my my years in Kansas City and L.A., I played mostly jazz. Uh, you know, not not super intense, loud settings most right. of the time. Um, and as soon as I got to Atlanta, I started playing a bunch of blues and funk. <laughs> and it yeah. was like, man, all right, gotta gotta muscle up. That's it. That's you just do what's in front of you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Thanks so much for talking with us. It was great to hear about Vegas. Uh, you're our first Vegas drummer to be on the podcast. So, great. Yeah. Thanks a lot for doing it. My pleasure, man. Thanks again to Larry for that great talk. Uh, go check out Zumanity if you're ever in Vegas. Uh, I'm sure it's quite an experience to get an eye full of the performers and an ear full of those drums. Thanks again to Sonar Drums and Aquarian Drumheads for their sponsorship. Thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and as always, thanks for listening. Be well.